This is the Prestidus Initiative. Welcome. I'm Chris Bean, and here with me is Chris Kent. Hello, Mr. Kent. Hello, sir. Here with us uh, today as well is John Chapelier, a multi-award-winning author, consultant, and speaker of wealth uh, with a wealth of experience. John, it's a pleasure to have you here with us on our show. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate it, and, I, and I'm very grateful for the invitation. Very good, John. You know, you've mentioned receiving, uh, you know, a gift of devastation that changed your life's focus. You know, and and could you could you share a little bit about the transformation uh, that you know that you experienced and how that shifted your perspective on success and the significance? Absolutely. Um, well, let's put it. Uh, one of the things I, I I talk about is is being in recovery as I'm a recovering big shot. And that's um, that's kind of where the concept began, because when I got out of business school and I started uh, working for other people and then I decided that's not where I want to be. I want to be in business for myself. Uh, I think in business for yourself, there's a certain level of self-confidence that you have to have to be in business. You guys know what I'm talking about. I mean, you have to really believe in what you're doing to <laughs> to wear, weather all the issues. But sometimes that can get a little carried away. And I think what happened with me is I've always been sort of a, if two is good, then eight is better than two. And so for me, it was the self-confidence moved quickly into hubris. And the hubris quickly ran into things being way too important for me to spend time with my family, to spend time with my wife, to go to soccer games or to go to back to school nights or to do the kinds of things that I had actually gone into business to do because I had been working for other people and I was working, you know, 12 hours a day, six days a week. And so I thought, well, if I open my own business, this will be a real different expectation. And what happened to me is after a few years of this, um, I got my gift of devastation, which is I had spent 10 or 11 years working very hard to build this business so that I could then come back and spend time with my family, only to find that in 1990, 1991, um, uh, the economy switched dramatically, kind of like it did in 2008, 2007, 2008. And the bank decided they wanted all the money that they had loaned me. They wanted it all back. Uh, and they gave me about two weeks to get it back. And it was a little hard to come up with $5 million off the top of my head. So uh, the business went out of business. And so I had I had 400 employees in 12 locations. And and it was a, not a very good time to be looking for work because it was a it was an economic downturn. Um, and my hubris was still pretty intact. And I felt like, well, you know, I'm sort of the child prodigy of the industry. I'm sure the phone will be ringing off the hook anytime now. And as I sat and waited and waited and waited and realized that nobody's probably going to call me. And a friend of mine who was a, a senior placement person said, nobody hires, <laughs> nobody hires the ex owner of an entrepreneurial business. Cause you're always going to be a pain in the ass. Um, so for me, it was like, well, then what am I actually going to do? Because I have, I spent all this time, my family really doesn't care about me one way or the other anymore. My business doesn't either. The phone calls aren't getting returned. The invitations to all the events that I was so welcome to aren't coming in anymore. And all of a sudden, I was kind of the guy sitting on the curb wondering what happened to the wonderkin who had been here for the last 10 or 11 years. Um, and I realized that I was probably putting my focus and importance on the wrong set of principles. And so 
what I had been struggling for over and over and over again was to be more successful. And uh, as long as it was more, that was the key ingredient. If I was 20% ahead last year, that was all that mattered. And it didn't matter what measurement, as long as it was more. And the thing I learned over time is if more is all I want, then more will never be enough. So it had to be more what <laughs> versus just more. And what I learned is that it's not success that I should have been striving for. It was significance that I should have been striving for. And that was a real eye opener for me. And I, and I, in the 25 years or so, it's been longer than that now, but it's since that happened, I can't tell you how many executives I've talked to that have, and just people in general who have said, you know, I got this or I had that, I had cancer, I lost, I got divorced, I had gone bankrupt, but, you know, things that are dramatic uh, or devastating that happen to you that if you let them sort of work their way through your your process, when you come out the other side, you will be amazed how much different your perspective is and how much more um, willing you are to try new lessons from new teachers. I sort of think of it as cracking the shell of hubris to, so a little humility can sort of wander in from time to time. And so for me, it was just, it was a horrific experience. Um, you know, I just about anything you could imagine financially that happened, happened. And um, uh, briefly, I, had a, I have a wonderful wife and we had a new baby son. And so I was able to sort of focus on them for a little while while I was getting my feet back on the ground. And um, I had a lot of the issues that a lot of entrepreneurs have, which is a sort of now they refer to it as imposter syndrome, which is, oh, my gosh, I'm 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 just lucky I got successful, but now I'll never be successful again because it was it was just luck. And so I opened another business and it was very successful very quickly, but I was able to build it on a different set of principles so that it wasn't all about me. It was about the people who worked with me. It was about my family. It was about anybody but, but me. I had already spent a whole lifetime already focused on me and I was only 40. So um as I began the new business, which was a, a completely different industry, but a whole different, but using the same basic clients to to buy from or had to buy from me. So I was able to go in and, and uh, utilize a lot of old contacts to build the business up very quickly. But I wasn't in a competitive market to the business I had sold. Um, so it's it was it was interesting and fun. My daughter wanted to come work with me for the first time. And God, I don't know, she was 22 or 23 at the time. And so it was like, hey, let's, you know, like, come on over, dad. And I want to work together. I was like, wow, you never even wanted to return my my phone calls before. <laughs> you know. And now she uh, wanted to work with me. So for two or three years, we worked together. Um, out of the 12 years or so, I ran that company. And um, it was wonderful. I mean, I was able to do things. Like I said, I had a new son, and um, and he was, you know, just three or four years old. So I was able to come home and spend time with him. The things that I had intended to do initially, but I was focused on success and more versus this time, which I was more focused on significance and. And real value rather than just imagined value. Um, I mean, it, the, the truth was when I mean, when I sold this company in. 
I don't know, two, maybe 2000. I had a hundred people call me and say, what are you going to do next? Are you going to do something else? I mean, I had nobody call me in 1990. 10 years later, I had a couple of hundred people call me because I was, I was contributing to their successes as well as my own. And so it, it meant more. It, it meant more to me. It meant more to them. I was able to uh, feel like I actually was being philanthropic without being selfishly philanthropic. You know, you know, you donate something, but somebody accidentally mentions it to the press that, you know, maybe you might want to write an article about this wonderful guy who's donating all this. You know, when, when you started doing things that were just because they were for some for the benefit of someone else service above self, as they say in Rotary, um, just and it's funny because those were not things. It was always something for something. It was always quid pro quo. I'll give you this. You give me this back. And uh, the more I found that I could give without expectation, the more I got back. It was, it was one of those weird conundrums of, well, like, I've got to be selfish because otherwise, who's going to protect me? And the interesting thing was the more I focused on the success of others, the more successful I became. So I was very grateful for that. That I was very unhappy about the learning experience and the, and the pain I had to go through to get there. But I was very grateful. Somebody told me and right after the, the company had closed in 1990, I guess, um, you know, there'll be a time where this bank who caused you so much pain, you're going to be grateful for this behavior. And I thought, that's never going to happen. Ne never going to happen. And by 2000, it was, I was so grateful that it had happened. I couldn't even believe it. I mean, you know, and, and I had gone through just what I considered to be everything about my life that was successful was gone. And then as it began to get rebuilt and the principles were different rather than just me, me and more, um, it just... I don't know. Everything just began. Joseph Campbell has a phrase, which is if you're following your bliss, doors will open that you didn't even know existed before. You know, and and that's kind of what happened to me. I mean, I did a speech that I didn't realize I was going to do. It was for a leadership group that I'd been a member of for probably 15 years in Washington. I grew up in Washington, D.C., by the way. And so this this was in Washington. That's where I owned this company. And so a leadership group asked me to come and talk about exactly what we're talking about right now. And at the end of the talk, a friend of mine who was also an alumni of this group came up and said, you got to write a book about this. This is just amazing. This is great stuff. They would love this. So he drags me over to his publisher at Putnam and um, Putnam was like, yeah, that's great. Let's do that. I'm like, okay. So now I'm, <laughs> now I'm not selling stuff anymore. I'm trying to figure out how to become an author and uh, I was always a talker, but not much of a writer. So it was very overwhelming to be sitting there looking at this little cursor blinking at me on a screen, trying to figure out how to get what I'm saying down. And my agent was very helpful because she said, well, then just talk, <clears throat> talk the story and then give me the give me the tapes and I'll give them to somebody who can change them from what it sounds like when you speak to what it sounds like when you read. That's easy to do. But getting the ideas out is what's hard. And so that's what I did for about the next year, I guess. And the book came out in 2004, 2005. Um, and I was very grateful because it came out, Putnam published it, published hard copy and a paperback copy, um, a very successful sales. Um, I was a little frustrated with them because they wanted to 
sort of turn this into a combination between more of a Christian focused book and a chicken soup for the soul book. And I really didn't want it to be that. I really wanted it to sort of be inclusive, not let's put a fence down and I'm on this side and you're over here. Um, I wanted it to be regardless of race, creed, color, national origin, religion, anything. I wanted it to be, you know, if you're struggling with these issues, it doesn't matter what your race, creed, color, national origin, sexual orientation, any of that is. You need to find a process on a daily basis to be able to keep yourself emotionally balanced so that you can actually deal with life on life's terms because uh, something I never wanted to do. I wanted to sort of imagine what life was like and then deal with that. All right. So I got, I got a couple of questions based on those things. Sure. You, your, sure. your shift that, that happened because of the, the, everything that happened with the, with the first business, um, did that, sure. did that just come about kind of naturally like your shift from, from more and more focus as opposed to a shift to, to the significance, the impact that you're making? Uh, was that a natural thing that you just kind of, that kind of fell into or, or did that, was that a purposeful, like how did that, how did that come about? Well, it was not purposeful and it was, <laughs> It was the bank walked in and said, we want our money back. And I had a 12 and a half year old company doing about $60 million a year where the business was 400 employees. And they gave me 30 days to pay them back or close the company. And I couldn't get the money. So the company closed. So it was that dramatic change. Um, it was not having my 911 career convertible to drive anymore. But a friend of mine... <laughs> A friend of mine loaned me his Rambler station wagon, which was about 12 years old and had one working window. So, you know, humility began to eke its, <laughs> eke its way into my life. Um, so, no, it wasn't it wasn't a quietly transitional thing. It was kind of like if this doesn't happen by this date. I mean, I can remember going to work. It was the Monday after the Super Bowl in in January of 1991. And. And having the CFO walk up to me and go, this is really not good. This is really not good. And um, we sat down and tried to figure out how and what we were going to do because the economy in those at that time was contracting anyway. So um, but this just, you know, it's kind of like I've contracted my company as much as humanly possible and everything was going along good. And then all of a sudden having to repay this debt would have completely wiped out our cash reserves. So it was no matter what I do, we're closed. And, um, you know, having a, having a, a bank auction walk through your building and auction off entire rows of a warehouse for, you know, what's probably $20,000 of the stuff for $1,500 for when they went in my office and sold my desk and my chair and my lighting and my artwork, um, those are things that will sort of realize that maybe this is not the right path. Um, and all along the way, the things that I had put focus on, uh, boards of directors, chambers of commerce, you know, service clubs, all these other things, I heard from none of these people. None of them called. None of them said, oh, I'm really sorry to hear this. How can we help you? The only people that called me were the people I had ignored for the previous 10 years, which was my family. You know, and so the people that I had ignored uh, were the people who were there. So that's why when I started over, I realized a different set of principles has to be here. So, no, it was pretty much from 
January 1st, 1991 to April 1st, 1991, the bank came in and sort of worked its way through. And then, well, basically, they didn't take the company. They gave me the company back with all the debt. They just took all the assets out and then walked off. Uh, so uh, they they bounced. They even bounced the sales tax check for December. And we did, I don't know, a million dollars of the sales in December. And uh, in Virginia, it was in those days, I think it was 4%. So 4% of a million dollars in the state of Virginia has got their hand up going, okay, John, could you send me a check for that? Because the bank just basically went, sue us. You know, we don't care. Sure. And um, so it was it was a very humbling experience and, and not something that I had experienced in a long time was this idea of humility. It kind of washed itself away protected by, again, by this sort of shell of hubris that had taken over. Well, you know, I, I commend the way that you handle that, because I think it's, there's kind of perhaps two ways that that could have went. You could, the, obviously, the, the path that you were on, or you could have taken that and, and it could have destroyed, you know, your future that, that you potentially had. And it, it seems like you made, you know, the, the, the clear choice for yourself and, and you learned from that experience and, and use that as, a, as a, a way to grow as opposed to a, an opportunity to get mad at somebody, to feel cut down or, or belittled, even though that's what had to happen in order for you to grow and, and expound. Now, you talked, you talked about your book. Your book is The Daily Six, and you outline six simple concepts for creating uh, positive change. And, you know, can you perhaps walk us through some of these principles and how, you know, maybe an individual or even organization can use that, uh, you know, to, to better their well-being or, or even productivity? Sure. Um, I, the book was originally written as sort of an individual self-help book, and that's what it won an award for self-help personal, um, because I really wasn't thinking about it as a corporate change book, even though it sort of began quickly to morph into that. Um, but the six concepts are willingness, because if you're not willing, nothing will change. <laughs> you know, willingness is oil in the engine. If if you don't have willingness, then that's the that's why. I mean, a lot of times when I'm talking to clients, I say, why don't New Year's resolutions last? You know, and it's a combination of lack of willingness and fear. You know, I'm going in a direction, even though it's healthy, I don't really know where I'm doing over here. And I'm not really willing to go through a level of uncomfortability to get there. So I end up back on old behavior again. So willingness is key to be number one for me. And actually, I've been wearing this bracelet probably for 20, well, not this bracelet, but I've been wearing a willingness bracelet, which is this for ever since the book came out. And it reminds me that, you know, if I'm not willing to be open-minded, to find new teachers, to keep growing, to keep learning, then I'm just stagnating, period. Um, you know, there's a, I forget, maybe it was Zig Ziglar, or Jack Canfield, or one of the old gurus was, I shouldn't say old, because I'm an old guy now, but you know, it was one of these things where you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards because the world is moving forwards. So there's no standing still. If you're standing still, you're moving backwards. So willingness was important for me to keep me moving. And so number two is quiet time. And, and you know, if you want to be uh, religious or, or spiritual about that, it can be prayer, it could be meditation, it could be carburetor repair. I don't really care what it is as long as it allows you to quiet your mind. I know people who knit 
and and I, I can't knit, but I can meditate. And so, um, and it, and that takes time. I mean, for me, I was this crazy double A type personality style for me to sit quietly in a, in a corner somewhere for more than 30 seconds was impossible. So, you know, and a friend said, and if in the book, there's three guys that I'd sort of dedicated the book to, and it was three people who taught me different components of what the six ended up being. And one of the guys was just this guy who was always joyful, happy. You know, if he was in a crowd, there was like 10 people standing around him, listening to him talk. And he's the one who said, if you start each day sort of reflecting on the day that you would like to have and think about how you would like to move it from a concept into a reality, meditation is the process. So I started doing that and, and worked it up from about 10 seconds to about a half an hour over a period of about a year. And, and that's been a wonderful lifesaver for me when I'm stressed or something else. Nowadays, it doesn't take anything to get my mind to quiet down because I've been at it forever. But I can, like I did that this morning, I was walking my dog and we go out early and the dog runs around loose in the park and I just kind of walk around in the park and it gives me a chance to sort of pay attention to life beside, you know, look this way instead of looking this way all the time. And it, it, I know this is only an audio. So look, you know, outward, not just always be focused on what's going on in here, but also pay attention to what's going on outside my, my physical body. Um, and so that's willingness and quiet time. So if you have to start with willingness, then set your mind and your heart in the right direction, which is what quiet time will do. Set your heart and your mind in the right direction. If you do that, your life will follow. So number three is service, service to others, focusing on the needs of others rather than just on my needs. And it's funny how you take somebody who's mostly spent his life focused on being the lead dog or, you know, those old routines you hear, you know, only the front dog is a decent view and you've got to be at the top of the chain and only, and, you know, only to find out that a lot of that really is just BS because that's what they learned in the twenties. And then they learned that in the forties and then they learned that in the sixties. And, you know, it just didn't, didn't quite, it seemed to me that emotional intelligence before it was before Goldman's book, came out, it was connecting with people on an emotional level was much more powerful than connecting with people on a controlling level, which is how the leadership worked when I was coming up, was leadership was basically controlling, telling you and controlling you versus encouraging you and asking you. And so number three is service, focusing on the needs of others and, and not worrying about whether that benefits me or not, just focusing on the needs of others. Number four is love and forgiveness. And I've always thought of love and forgiveness as sort of two sides of the same coin. Um, you can't really be loving unless you're forgiving and you can't be forgiving unless you're being loving. Um, and love is just, uh, the, the phrase I used in the book is understanding the needs of others and treating those needs as important as if they were mine. That's it. And, and so when I do that, it doesn't matter if it's a customer, a sister, a brother, a parent, a child, a spouse. If I treat their needs as important as my own, it doesn't matter who they are. It, it connects me on a much deeper level than not paying attention. And then forgiveness is just simply giving up all hope of having a different yesterday. You know, it's I can't change yesterday, but I can carry all the resentment and anger into today. 
but it really screws up today if I bring all the, the past stuff forward. So forgiveness really, and one of the things when I've worked with clients, I've had people say, well, I just can't forgive them for this. I just can't let that go. And that's what you were talking about, you know, how you sort of got past the bank. And it wasn't easy. I mean, it took me some time to sort of let this go. But the faster you can let go of things, and this is sort of one of the Buddhism issues of non-grasping, you know, not hanging on to things, whether with Buddhism, it's good or bad, just live and move forward. Um, And the more that you can let go of negativity, the better it is for you. Um, When I'm focusing on forgiveness with a client, the idea is that it's good for the client. I don't, if, if I'm forgiving somebody else and they don't accept it, that's okay with me because I'm trying to clear up my side of the street here. And if they accept it, great. They don't accept it. I want to make sure I can go to sleep tonight because I've done everything I can to smooth out everything in between us. And so that's what forgiveness does for me. Uh, Number five is gratitude. Um, Being grateful for all things at all times, including having the bank come in and shut your company, (laughs) shut your company down. Um, so it's, you know, and it took a while before I could say, wow, that was really a good idea. And this is the issue I have with people. You know, I say, well, tell me about your gift of devastation. Well, I got fired from my job. And then I said, well, then what happened? Well, I had to move home with my parents. And well, then what happened? Well, I got this other job and it was really a great job. And then I got there and I met the woman I fell in love with. And then I got married. And I said, so in other words, if this hadn't happened, none of this would have happened. Exactly. <laughs> well, then. <laughs> That's not a bad thing. Maybe you should be grateful that you lost that job or or filed for bankruptcy or ended up having to move across the country to take care of an old relative or something. You know, if we can embrace life as it comes to us, we can live a much more positive way. And then and then number six is simply action. It is okay. These are great concepts, but if we don't do something about them, then nothing's going to change. You can have all the intention you want, but if it doesn't work itself into some sort of action, then all you've got is intention. And so a friend of mine used to say that people judge us on our behavior, not on our intentions of behavior. And so for me, it was critically important that I not think about kindness or caring or supportive. It's that I actually became those things. And so um, I started a simple practice of how to take intentions. And in the quiet time in the morning, I would set intentions. And then as I go through the day, I would practice reminding myself of the intentions. Because what usually happens, it's just like New Year's resolutions. You know, by March, everybody's given them up. And with intentions, we, you know, we set a good intention in the morning by 10 o'clock. Somebody, you know, we've been in traffic and it's pissed us off and we've talked to somebody on the phone and we're angry about that and the intentions just kind of you know go away so how do we keep that in our minds for me when initially it was i actually set alarms on my phone every 20 or 30 minutes you know how are you doing with that idea of being inclusive today or being kind today or thinking about calling your parents today or whatever it might be and then as i began to practice that it just became daily behavior, you know, like anything else. If you practice it, it will become a habit. So, all right. So that's the I, daily. I, I have a question and then I have sure. a couple, a couple of, of points that, that I really liked about those. My, my question sure. is, are those, those, those six points, those six areas, are they arranged in a particular order 
or or are they or are they just there? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> a little both. Okay. Um, okay. I've I've had friends of mine when I first wrote them out. Um, before I wrote the book, I had a little card just had six components on it. And she said she put the card on her refrigerator every day and went over and looked at the card and said, I'm going to work on love and forgiveness today, or I'm going to work on quiet time today. So she was just working on the, the concepts in an arbitrary way. Um, and it seemed to work great for her. She said it got me through a divorce. It got me through, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And I was fantastic. So for me, the idea is it's, it's kind of like cracking that hubris shell. For me, it really does sort of need to be in a process uh, of being willing to start and then setting my intention right with my heart and my mind through quiet time. Then really the only components of, of change are service, love and forgiveness and gratitude. And then action is doing something about these ideas. So um, love and forgiveness, service and gratitude are kind of just the idea of kindness, <laughs> being nice, and um, and finding ways to do that. So for me, it's I have to set set the table and then eat the meal, and then remember to to clean the plates and start over again, and just keep keep this process going. So for me, it's I have a I have a version of the Daily Six that I've rewritten called How the Daily Six Works at Work, and it's how do each of these components fit into a workplace. Um, because, you know, people want to feel connected. And in the 20 years or so since I wrote the book, uh, the idea of having an engaged workforce is really important. And yet people try to do that without emotion. And I said, well, what's the difference between a couple and an engaged couple? The only difference is emotion. So some of the things that you said that I really that I really resonated with were you, you set – the the reminders on your phone and that is such that's such a a a wonderful way that's something i do personally and we've talked about this before and it's such an overlooked thing and and for me the way that i do that is is i went through a process of 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 defining my values and then for each of the values i dedicated a affirmation to each of those and on Hmm. different days at different times of those days I have a reminder in my phone that'll go off and it'll tell me that affirmation on those specific times where I know that I'm in that area that I value. And I, that was so beneficial. I heard that. And and again, such an easy thing to do, but it's often overlooked and not talked about. And the other thing that I really resonate is you mentioned practices, not habits. You, you did mention habits. They, they become habits later on, but practices. And that's something that, w- that we have talked about on the show previously, that daily practices are so important because for, for so a little background uh, about who we are, we're martial arts instructors and have been doing that for, uh, I've been doing it since uh, 99. And so a, a length of time. And so practice for me is something that I understand. That's that's a word that that resonates with me. And practice, despite what they say, practice doesn't make perfect. And perfect practice <laughs> also doesn't make perfect because perfect isn't something that humans, it's not a box that humans can fit into. Yeah. And practice makes progress, perhaps, but practice makes permanent, really, is how I interact with that. And the way you practice something is the way that it's going to be performed. And by thinking about those, right. instead of instead of habits, 
as a practice, then that brings the intention of it's something that I have to continually do. It's habits have a have a, a, a crafty way of formulating in your brain. You do it a handful of times, and it just happens on accident. You never you don't even know it's ha- no. That's not <laughs> to me to my experience. That's not how those things happen. There has yeah. to be a practice, right. a daily practice that I commit to, and I'm going to strive forward with. And so hearing you you talk about those things really again that really resonates with me and how uh, how I interact with my 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 daily activities because practice is really the you know we are what we practice we are what we repeat and that those daily practices are so important to that right it's uh, the the phrase that i use in keynotes is practice to permanence you know that's that's where that's what you need to do because it it, it will become a habit but it's going to be uncomfortable it's interesting. I was just getting ready to write an article about this. I don't know if you've ever seen a success curve plotted out, but it always starts at, say, on a scale of, you know, that how successful you are goes up because I just started. I'm very excited. And then it starts to tank almost immediately and goes down to a point. But if you keep at it, at, as it's going down, it starts to turn and come back up again. And I was looking at uh, Kubler-Ross. She has her six stages of grief or whatever it was. I've, I've kind of forgotten that. I used to study that, but I haven't in a long time. But I was looking at an image of it, and it's exactly the same thing. You start out, and you feel terrible, and then you really tank out. And then all of a sudden, you keep going through it, and you start coming out the other end. So for me, you know, anything you want to do, you've got to realize there's going to be a real big dead spot. <laughs> there's going to be a real big dead spot in between getting excited and starting and being successful and continuing. And, and it just takes a commitment to p- realize it and then push through it. Uh, but if you sort of assume, well, I'm going to start eating well and I'm never going to eat badly again, <laughs> you know, or I'm going to exercise today and I'm always going to exercise today. And you know, it's just like if I'm going to meditate and pray every day or whatever it is you want to do, that's great. But you're going to might miss on Thursday or Friday. Don't quit forever. Just pick it up and start going. And it's the same thing with negative stuff. Well, I ate things I shouldn't eat. OK, fine. Then pick up tomorrow and start working on it. That's why I, I refer to it as the daily six, because it really is a, a daily reminder of the things that we need to keep ourselves open to so that we can we can be of service to the life that we've been given. Yeah, very good. Very, that, that's so that's so cool how you, how how we resonate with that. Um, yeah, with with your you know your your kind of the second book talked about in your, the daily six in, in right. business. You know, right. with with that, how you know what strategies can businesses use to cultivate a more positive and engaging culture, and how does okay. that factor in with the individual well being as well? Okay. Well, for me. Um, individual well-being is is first. You can't stand up in front of 300 people and talk about trust me. <laughs> it just it just doesn't happen like that. I mean, the article that's article I wrote just said trust is the final step towards success. It isn't the first step towards success. Um, it takes a number of other components to get there first you have to be and again if you follow the daily six stuff you have to be consistent and and consistent to your word um i'm sure you've read the four agreements and you know being honest to your word and being and being genuine so to me each individual person has to be brought along but that's 
in an organization, they can be brought along by the leadership's consistency and willingness to to be uncomfortable. I, most of the time when I have to work with an organization, um, it's getting the leadership, not so much the people. The people want to connect. The people want to be successful. I, I've said that for years and years and years. The people who work for you want to be successful. You are just not allowing them to be successful because either they don't feel comfortable asking you a question or they don't feel comfortable questioning something that they're doing that they think they could be doing better or faster or smarter. And they're just not willing to come and talk to you. So you have to find a way to be more open. And I said, the way that you do that, in my mind, is ask more questions instead of giving more orders. You know, ask more questions. Well, how do you think this might work? Or how do you think this would work better? How, you know, give me some ideas about how to shorten the turnaround on this. The people who do the work understand how to do the work better than the people who supervise the work. And that I've been saying since I was running a company back in the 80s. You know, if you want to ask the, how to get the truck drivers back faster, ask the truck drivers. Don't ask the warehouse manager. You know, so, you know, ask the people. Don't tell the people. Uh, when I'm in an orga- organizational training program, I usually say, how many people here have ever had a brand new process or training program or something created by the people above you and then dropped on you? without any explanation or notice that it was coming. (laughs) And of course, everybody raises their hand. Everybody raises their hand. Or how many people in here have had a chance where the person said, trust me on this, and then they violated that trust and everybody raises their hand. So it isn't that hard. It just requires you to do something, just like with the Daily Six, it just requires you to do something that it was not taught in business school, which is to be willing to be vulnerable, to willing to use, to be honest at at almost any level. I mean, I I'm, I do believe at some point you you could even share financial statements with the people that you work with, so they know where how strong you are, they know where your need your needs are. But you have to do that with the people that you you have an absolute level of trust with. You're talking about organizations. The thing that's important about an organization is that if you don't do this, if you don't find a way to create a connection, an emotional connection, if you want engagement, there has to be an emotional connection. If you want inclusion and connection with your people, there has to be an emotional connection. You can't have a sense of inclusion in an organization where there's no emotion. Inclusion is an emotional feeling, a feeling of being included, a sense of building a community. And once you have a community built, you have a common focus. Everybody is focusing in the same directions. And it's just like a magnifying glass. If you put a magnifying glass on your profits, they will grow. If you put a magnifying glass on the happiness and joy of your people, they will grow. And so actually we have a new uh, a friend of mine and the We did uh, three other people and myself came out with a new book last year called People Come First. It's, um, you know, it's sort of a business guide for the new millennium. And the idea was, if you focus on your people, the profits will take care of themselves. And the thing that's important, as I was saying originally, is that if you don't do this, what will happen is the people who have opportunities which are your best people. Those are the people who have opportunities. They're getting calls to change jobs. They're getting calls to to move up in another position. Um, 
if you haven't built an organization that holds on to those people and values those people, they will leave because they have an opportunity to leave. And what you will be ending up with is everybody who has no opportunity to go anywhere because nobody else wants them and they work for you. So now you're going to have a whole company full of average to below average performers, which is absolutely not what you want. So it is it is really important to sort of set this ego aside and set this, you know, I don't. What is it? I don't have ulcers. I give them. You know, it's like, please don't ever say that to anybody. You know, and it's just really it's a weird feeling that you, when you begin to ask people, how are you feeling and really mean it? You know, how are you doing? How is that sister of you? Remembering little details about the person and the connections to the company and to you. And the more you do that, the more you invest in time then the people who are actually doing the work. Because you're probably, if you're a CEO of a company, you're not doing a lot of the work on a daily basis that makes profits. Your work is the relationships with the people who work there. That's what you should be focusing on. The future and the relationships of the people who work with you. And that's all. If you do that, the profits will take care of themselves. Well, and, you know, I think probably the, the best way to make those connections with the people is through communication and, you know, effective communication really is, is vital in, in all aspects of life. How, um, how does, how does positive communication, uh, help to reduce the stress and enhance relationships? Um, and, and, you know, again, how does that, how does that impact that individual and their well being? Well, I think, I think a sense of positive well being is a is something that's very hard to say is, is anything other than positive for somebody if they're feeling good about themselves and they're feeling like as if I'm appreciated and I'm respected and I'm I'm valued then there's a po- there's a positive sense of success that continues to this is what one of the phrases that I use in the how the daily six works at work is that it creates a cycle of success that repeats itself day in and day out, this kind of behavior. And it's important, if you can get into a, into a group setting in, a, in an organization, team meeting or whatever it is, and instead of being at the front of the room, be a member of the, of the uh, audience and let somebody else lead the meeting and let that cycle around. Let somebody else feel most important. Do things like I remember when I was, well, this was a long time ago, when I told people about doing it, they're like, you do what? Which was sending a letter home to the family, thanking them for giving, allowing me to hold them late at night or work them on a Saturday or whatever. And I knew I was impacting the family and this, that, and the other thing. And um, it was an amazing reaction that, the, you know, you're talking about a sense of value and a sense of personal value and self-worth. The person comes in after the husband or the wife says, oh, my gosh, I got this letter today. And they're just praising how you work and how hard you're doing and then thanking me for and that, that person shows up for work tomorrow. They're not upset about anything. They're walking down the hall, skipping and humming to themselves. And and it, it the thing is, it doesn't take much. I've been in offices before where the, where literally a post-it note is framed and hanging on the wall next to a computer screen because it's a note that the 
boss sent a note and said, thanks very much. You helped us a lot on the McKenzie project or whatever it is and stuck it on the computer. And that's the only thing they ever have received in the entire 10 years they worked there. So they stuck it in a thing and hung it on a wall so that they can remind themselves that they're important. So what we need to do, this is not as hard as it seems because most people don't do it. You know, most people don't do it. So you can look like a genius just by saying thank you. Just my acknowledging people on a personal level, not just on an organizational level. It's it's when no one else is doing it, you can look like a genius. Well, and that's something that's so difficult, even you know, even with parents, is because the the bosses, the managers, the parents, they are looking for the nail, like the I think it's a Japanese proverb, the nail that sticks out is gets hammered down, and. Mm-hmm. they're looking for the negative. And of course, when you're looking for that, that's what you're going to find. And you're always going to be right. in that type of, of mode of thinking. You're looking for the negative, you're finding negative, and you're always reprimanding people. But if you can shift, you're right. right. Almost nobody does that. If you can shift to the, the positive things right. and be grateful for your team or right. your kids or your, your, your family for the things that they're doing, oh my gosh, that goes so far because nobody does it. And you could be that one person that makes such a big right. change in that person's life because instead of exactly. only focusing on the negative you found the positive for them right and, and with an organization what you really should be doing is teaching your people not you but your people to look for the negative and let them find it and let them fix it and then you can praise the people who found the negative and so it turns the whole concept completely around that you're you as leadership are not focusing on the negative. You're focusing on the positive because the people who work for you and are on the front lines, they're looking for those little nails that are sticking up and they're hammering them down. And in the next week's meeting, you can say, Jim, thanks a lot for finding that nail and hammering it down because you made a big difference. And so we just had the wrong level of, of organizational uh, observation that we were letting the executives hammer down the nails and the nails are problems. They're not people. (laughs) And we were hammering down on the people. And and so what happens to the problems? You know, they just stay there or get worse because the last time I raised my hand, I got in trouble. I'm never raising my hand again. I can't tell you how many times people have said that to me. I learned my lesson, (laughs) never doing that again. And that's not people saying, you know, every time I go to him, things get better. Every time we talk, I feel better about the relationship. And that's how you want your people to feel. And like I said, I mean, even after working on this for 20 years, I talk to people and it's like, wow, they don't do anything like that where I work. And I think, you know, so so how hard is this, especially with a smaller company? I mean, large companies have no chance. I mean, I guess they have some chance of success, but it's it is the the level of diffusion of, of authority is so spread out over a, in a large organization. It's really hard to make a positive, you know, positive change. But in a small, you know, less than a couple of hundred employees, it's really very easy. Well, that's not true. It's very uncomfortable, but it's not hard. You just have to be willing to be uncomfortable. That's what I say to if you want to create change. This is why willingness is so important. You know, you have to realize new behavior is uncomfortable. All new behavior is uncomfortable, even if it's good behavior. You know, if you start eating healthier, that tastes different than going to McDonald's. I mean, it's just 
you know, it's a different expectation and it's going to feel weird doing it. It's like asking questions instead of telling people what to do. It's connecting on an emotional level instead of in just an intellectual. Level. These are all different behaviors, but they're good behaviors. And we have to be willing to sort of struggle through that success curve we were talking about before, push through, get to the other side and have it start becoming more and more successful. And all of a sudden, I think success is the most addictive drug in the world. Because so few people really have a sense of what success feels like. If you give them a chance to feel successful, they want to come back and get that feeling again and again and again. And the only person that holds them back from that is the leadership. Leadership holds the people back from trying for things because when they try and they don't succeed and you hammer that nail down, they're not trying anymore. Well, you know? and, and if so, you can if you can have your employees see the problems and you empower them to be able to fix the problems, then you right. have created a, a team of problem solvers that are your, that's your right. staff. And then that way, right. when they come to you, they say, Hey, here's the problem. Here's the, the, the fix that I implemented. And you're thinking, Oh, wow, that's a, that's a big problem. Oh, you've already, you've fixed the problem already. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Right. You are, uh, you know, I, I truly believe in working, trying to work your always, uh, always trying to work yourself out of a job. And if you can empower the, the people below you to find the problems, to fix those problems, you are doing exactly that. And, and not only will they succeed for that, you will succeed for that. And the business, the overall business will be so much different than any of, any of your other uh, competitions because you have a team of problem solvers. And that is the culture that your right. business identifies with. Right. When you get to a point where you have people problem solving, and then letting you know it's been fixed. Your job as a leader is just get everything out of their way. That's all. Just get all the roadblocks out of their way and let them go. You know, make sure they got plenty of food and coffee and breaks and whatever else, and then just watch them go. Um, because they trust you. They know that if they try something and it doesn't work, that you'll help them figure out how to get it back on track. And the, the thing that's really important is that has to also, if I'm a middle manager and I've got my people doing this, like you said, I want to work myself out of a job. If I'm a middle manager and I'm fearful that I am working myself out of a job, because what am I actually doing as far as the guy above me goes? The guy above me has to believe that too, or otherwise I'm going to keep my, my thumb on the throat of the people who underneath me because I've got to prove my value. This is what happens when new people come in. You know, I've got a, I've had clients come in and screw stuff up just so they could fix it. So they looked great because they were new on the job. Um, so, you know, it's like create chaos so I can solve chaos. Um, but if you're, again, if you're in a smallish company, a couple hundred employees or smaller, you're, you're the leader pretty much, or you're the next to the leader. And so that kind of an environment can be created reasonably easily over probably less than a year you can get to a point where you're going from pounding down the nail to people self-solving and moving forward so okay so let, let's let you've you've have experience in 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 starting companies and running them and then moving yeah. in move, doing another one and, and even helping companies if right. you were to come into the company Okay, this is a multi multi part question. Number one, you know, <laughs> what what would be the the key warning signs 
that would be something that would be uh, worrisome, like the red flags? What would be some like let's say like, give me give me three red flags that you you know you come into the company you know right away boom 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 those are those are negative things and then what are what, on, on on the flip side of that you go into the company what are the three green signs that you say well these guys are on track they they're and maybe those people probably wouldn't hire you to, to you know to, to come in and right. help them their business right. but what would be the the you know those two corresponding sides well the 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 three things that seem to me to pop up is absenteeism and turnover and attitude leadership at not worker attitude leadership attitude um, are they talking about asking questions or are they talking about telling them what to do? You know, where, what's the control issue associated with leadership? Um, and then, of course, what I would end up doing is what, what works best in trying to get create change in an organization is talking to leadership and then talking to the people who are actually in charge. Um, you go to the next level down. It might not be the VP. It might be. You know, it's not the lieutenant, it's the staff sergeant that really is in charge kind of thing. So you go find that person and you work with that person to get to get the changes made. So that's the positive side of it is making sure that you find the right person. Don't just use an arbitrary uh, cookie cutter version of change, because it, if you go in and you just talk to the CEO and then all of the other VPs on the way down, you could end up with six VPs that aren't going to trust the idea of being emotionally engaged because they've tried it. Because anytime you hire somebody, not only are you hiring them to work with you, but you're also hiring all of the old baggage from every employer, every employer's culture that they have ever had before, whether they've ever trusted, whether they've been violated in that trust, whether they've been um, you know, bullied, whether the, any of these things, if you're hiring all of that along. And so your job, if you want to create change, is to find a way to talk this through with the people who are critically important and teach them how to deal with this stuff. Um, again, sometimes it's, it can be as simple as the daily six. Um, but emotional intelligence is such a critically important component, especially with younger workers. Younger workers don't want to be told what to do. They want to be asked input. They want to give input, <laughs> whether they know or not know. They want to give input and they want it to be appreciated. And so that's not hard for a, for a leadership component, manager, leader who's willing to listen and not be critical. No eye rolling, no tut-tutting, no, you know, I, I used to do a, a humorous sketch about, uh, and you you know, your people can't see me, but when, you know, the person comes in the office and somebody's working on their computer and they say, just sit down, go ahead, tell me what's important, tell me what's going on, because it's really important to me, but they never look up from the computer and they just keep clicking on the keyboard. I guarantee you this person is not concerned about anything other than I am definitely not as important as whatever is going on with that computer. So, you have to learn silly little things. I mean, I used to teach this in retail, you know, how to how to get people to stand on a, at a counter and not be angry by being ignored, but welcome them and tell them that they're important and tell them to just be a minute. I'll be right with you. That's all you have to do. And it's the same with people who are working in a in a normal organizational environment. You have to be willing to listen to them, but you also have to have the skill sets to be able to say, well, now, how do I? 
you know, I'm this guy is being honest with me. This woman's being straightforward with me as far as how she's feeling and what's caused. How do I respond to that? So if you don't have those skills or you haven't ever tried to work on those skills, in many cases, it's not common sense. In many cases, it's something that you really have to work on to realize no, what I would be saying here would be criticism, and what I need to be is supportive. And so these are sometimes things that that are as far from common sense, at least for me it was that way. I mean, I had to really focus on what I'm hearing rather than what I'm imagining is going on in my head. Because what I'm imagining, I used to imagine the answer while the other person is talking. And I realized that if if somebody gives me an answer immediately when I finished talking, they weren't listening. They were thinking up an answer. So, you know, as as managers, we have to be willing to, you know, sort of disconnect our brain a little bit and honestly listen to what's going on. Listen, not just with your eyes and your ears, but with your heart and see if you can sort of hear the underlying message that's going on here. You know, is this person genuinely sad? Is this person are they angry? I've had people who sound angry and they're really sad. I've had people who sound sad and they're really fearful. But I wouldn't know that if I didn't take a few extra minutes to sort of qualify what that is. And I guarantee you, every time I've ever done that, it has been worth it a hundred times over because of the level, like I said, absenteeism and turnover evaporate. People want to come to work. They like coming to work. It's the, you know, the first time they've ever had a job where they felt like they were a part of the success of the organization, not just a, an, you know, an unacknowledged cog in the wheel, you know, another brick in the wall, thanks to Pink Floyd. Well, John, what a, what a, what a wonderful conversation uh, that we had today. Your, your insights, your, your experiences are truly, truly inspiring. Thank you for, for joining us here. Um, you know, do, do you have any, any closing remarks or uh, takeaways for our listeners? Um, I would say that, um, well, first of all, if you want to see any, I have lots of videos and uh, I have a, a whole chapter. The first chapter of the book is online. There's, the book is available, I think, on Scribble. Scribble? S-K-R-I-B-L. The book is a, the book. And the audio book and the electronic book are available either for free or almost like a dollar or something. I mean, they do a great job of keeping it very, very inexpensive. I have it on Amazon as well. But, you know, I I don't want to not say Amazon because they certainly send me a lot more money than Scribble does. But but it's a very inexpensive. It's a it's a great book place, but it's a great place to get things that are a little bit more affordable for everybody. But, you know, between the videos and and the material, it just, the key is to be willing to be uncomfortable with new behavior and be willing to find new teachers to teach us. If you're not comfortable with where you are today, find a new teacher because you can't fix this with this. Oh, I'm sorry. You can't see me, can you? You can't fix. I keep thinking you can see me. You can't fix your brain with your brain. You know, it's your brain that got you here today. If you're in trouble, your brain brought you here. Find somebody else to sort of guide you out of that. That's why I think coaching has finally gotten, you know, gotten some credibility. 20 years ago when I was, or 35 years ago when I was trying to find a coach, there weren't around. There just weren't any. And uh, I was running a company that kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and I had no idea how to run it. 
you know. Um, so coaching is very helpful or mentoring is very helpful if you have it in your organization. But yeah, I think if you do those, if you do things on a daily basis that help you move from a position of sort of guessing to a position of understanding and the willingness to take the time to get to know the people who work with you on a level that's not just, Hey, how you doing? You know, kind of thing. And um, there's lots of information on my website uh, or any of any of my connections on social media. Most of them just circle around my name, John Chapelier. Um, that's where my, that's my website. That's, most of the social media stuff. So, um, or people can just reach out if they want. I mean, I'm perfectly happy um, responding to people who send me an email or, or, or send me a text, well, not a text message, but an email. Um, I get back to people pretty quickly, unless I'm traveling, but usually pretty within a day or two. Yeah. Awesome. Wonderful. And, and you know, I'll, I'll be sure to put all your, your links in the description for this episode as well. That way, if anybody okay. wanted to reach out, they could find you. And you're on, you, you have several... Uh, videos up on, on YouTube as well. Is that right? Yes, I have probably 30, 30 or 40 videos on YouTube. Wonderful. And uh, I keep, I'm going to start creating some new ones starting next week. I've got ideas and I've started laying out the ideas. And now I know what the, now I know what to say when I turn on the camera. <laughs> Very good. Well, listeners, if you found our episode today valuable, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing it. Remember, it's not just about success. It's about creating significance in your life and the lives of others. Join us next time for more inspiring conversations. Remember, stay prestigious.